I'm not an engineer. We'll see. Yeah. Don't put them in your pocket. You'll break them. Hmm? Yeah, you're, you're kind of engineering. Yeah, like what do you... I know. That's exactly the way I felt. I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Gonna be my little pocket buddy is what it is. There it is. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> let's pray. God, you are worthy. You are worthy of infinitely more than we could ever give you, and that is the backdrop to this sermon today. God, I confess that in my own heart, um, even though you are, you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and praise, that in my own heart I try and find the, um, the minimum amount that I can give and get by. And I search for ways that I can cling to the stuff of this world and still have you in the end. And that's such a small view of who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do. And so, God, I pray that you would use this message today. That you would use your word in connection with the power of your spirit to open our eyes and to break our hearts. And to crush the things in our lives that do not belong. You are worthy of our all. And I pray that today would be the start for every person in this room and every person watching online to truly give you our all. Do the work that only you can do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to thank you uh, so much for your prayers. A little update for those of you who don't know. Uh, my dad is currently in the hospital in uh, Milwaukee. He had some uh, heart complications this week. Uh, we found out on Friday he was going to look at a hernia in his leg. And uh, the doctor uh, was um, gifted enough to look at some of the other surrounding symptoms and recognize that uh, dad needed to be immediately transported to the hospital. Um, so he has been uh, in good hands uh, since Friday night. Um, found out that he has, um, they're thinking congestive heart failure is the, is the uh, current diagnosis, um, and they're thinking about 70% of his heart is still functioning, which for those of you who know anything about congestive heart failure, that's not bad. That's not, that's not bad. You can do a lot with 70% of your ticker. Um, and so the, um, the big prayer request right now is he was retaining a lot of fluid and uh, gained about 20 pounds in the last week. And they're in the process of getting that fluid out of his body. Uh, they need to do that and they need to do it soon, uh, specifically in his legs. And uh, right now they're not... Um, they, they can't find a pulse in his legs. Um, and that's that's serious, right? You want you want to be able to uh, get the blood flowing through your through your body, and so um, that's if I could ask for anything, just for my dad, that you guys would uh, pray that that everything starts moving and that we can find a pulse in the legs soon. So that's the that's the big prayer request there. Looking forward to being with you tomorrow, Dad. I'm sure Mom's holding an iPad up to you somewhere, and uh, love you, big guy. I'll see you soon. Um, this is a tough chapter, and uh, there's probably a reason why <laughs> there was so much opposition to me preaching through it uh, this week. <laughs> Not today, Satan. Um, 
it's a hard chapter. It's a hard section, right? When we look at Corinthians, it's a, uh, it's a hard section because it is a section that calls for death to self. Um, ever since the ending of chapter 7, um, Paul has been uh, really presenting this paradigm shift, right? Of how we tend to look at the Christian life versus how we are called to look at the Christian life. And so uh, we start talking about all these issues of uh, meat being offered to idols and our relationships and all of these things that we hold dear, our Christian freedoms. And Paul addresses the way that we typically look at these things, the way that we are tempted to look at these things, kind of a, a me-centered approach to the Christian life, and he's starting to turn it on his head, Right? He's starting to look at the Christian life and say, guys, really, I, I need you to get this. As I'm responding to your letter, as I'm responding to the rhetoric that you're using, the, the statements that you're making, it is pivotal that you guys start to see that this life is not about you. Because the things that you are saying, the needs that you need me to address, the things that, that you actually deem as being needs are completely missing the point. The point of your devotion to God, the point of your love for your brothers, we're missing it here, guys. And so I need for you to start to see, starting in that that end of seven and all the way through, I need you to see that this life is more about your God than you. I need you to see that what you do is more about those who are around you than simply what you like to do. And so in view of your Christian freedoms, in view of your relationship, in view of the stuff of this earth that you hold dear, you are to view it in light of the one who has called you, the one who has saved you, the one who has given you life, not life in this life, but life that carries on into the next. So you are to view the here and now in light of the then and there. And so he's starting to do this paradigm shift. And it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable because we like our stuff. We like the things that we like. We like to be comfortable. We like to have the relationships that we want to have and not have to justify them. We like to do the things that we like to do and not have to justify them. And far be it from any brother and sister to come up to us and hold us accountable for the things that we do. Shut up, man. I got Christian freedom here. And Paul says, whoa, let's take a step back and take an honest look at the Christian life. So that's what we're in the midst of. And we come to a very uncomfortable section. It is a very uncomfortable section that we have to deal with today. I can't wait. How about you? Let's dive right in. And props to Stephen Schultz. Where's SP at? Where's my homie? Um, When everything started going down with dad... Uh, the first thing he did was call and check in on how I was doing. The very next thing he said was, do you need me to preach for you? Do you need me to, do you need me to come up there? And I, thinking about the text, I kind of laughed to myself before I said no. <laughs> Just knowing what this chapter is. But, uh, but I appreciate my brother who was willing to create that space for me to be able to go. Thank you so much, man. I love, I love this church. I love this family. And I love working with men like Stephen and... Chris, too. Um, <laughs> hope you're enjoying your vacation, buddy. Miss you. Anyway, uh, starting in 10, verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
And going on in verse 15, he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. There's a whole lot in that little verse, and so I want to unpack it a little bit. Therefore, connects Paul's commandment to flee to the previous section, which Pastor Chris covered two weeks ago. Now, I know all of you in preparation since we had that Mother's Day gap. I know all of you last night, you gathered around as a family, you got out your devices that connect to the Internet, and you all listened to Pastor Chris's sermon so as to refresh you so that we could all hit the ground running today. For that, I thank you. I love being to such a dedicated church. However, I know that we also have visitors watching online in here today and so for their sake (laughs) let's just take a minute and recap where we were so we know what the therefore is there for so if you guys recall verses one through five paul is reminding his readers of the many blessings that old testament israel had during their time in the wilderness journey Right, do you remember back kind of when Chris was talking about all the advantages that they had, all the blessings that Old Testament Israel had? Uh, they saw God's presence manifest in some pretty miraculous ways, right? When you go back and you read the story of Exodus, it's like, whoa, did God really do that? Yes. Yes, he really did. The people saw him as a pillar of fire. The people saw him as a cloud. The people saw him descend on a mountain in power. The people saw the plagues in Egypt. The people saw God manifest in some crazy awesome ways. So they had those blessings. And not only that... But their physical and spiritual needs were met by God's very hand, right? You think of the manna, you think of the quail, you think of the water from the rock or the bitter water being made sweet. And all of these ways in which, even their clothing, not not wearing out, I mean, they were first-hand witnesses to God's miraculous power and provision. So when we talk about the people of Israel, I know a lot of times like, man, Israel, but like, Look at the things that they actually got to look at. Paul really wants you to see their vantage point. Because where he goes from there is crucial. You need to understand the blessings. You need to understand the provisions in order to understand why Paul is being so passionate about what he is calling the New Testament church to. So let's not forget about those first five verses because afterwards we see that despite God's amazing goodness and grace on full display, verses 6 through 12 remind us of chapter 10 that their words and their works and their worship went the way of the surrounding pagan nations. And it didn't take very long, did it? It really didn't. A nation heard by, delivered by, pursued by, provided by, provided for by the one true God allowed His goodness and His grace to provide the space for their hearts to be pulled further from Him instead of closer to Him. A decision on repeat throughout the Old Testament that brought devastation on repeat to that nation. To which Paul says, therefore, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking to smart people. I'm speaking to people who know this story, who know this history of God's chosen people. And so in light of this, therefore, in light of this, flee from idolatry. Do not go back to it. Guys, this is so crucial for us to get. Flee is the same present active imperative that we have seen Paul use. Uh, He uses it throughout his writings, uh, but again, it is that, that term that denotes present action that goes on repeat. 
It's a habit. It is not a one-time thing. It is not at the cross, at the cross, where at... No, no. This is something that we do as believers continuously. We bring our idolatry before the cross and we flee from it. We turn from it. We repent of it. And this is important for us to get in a grace-based culture. We don't understand that there is still the sanctifying work that we partner with. And Paul is calling us to that. To presently, actively flee on repeat. Every day, every moment that you find yourself turning towards the things that are tempted to take the throne of your heart and replace the one true God, you run from it. And Paul takes it a step further, actually. If you look at... Actually, we won't go there. We won't go there yet because there's slides and I can't just preach. I have to follow slides. And so uh, I love the heart posture that is presented and it's one that we're going to go back to. It's Psalm 139. This is, I, it, I want us to land in this place today and so we're going to come back to it. But it's the posture of somebody who is seeking after God's heart, right? David, a man after God's own heart. And listen to his prayer. Listen to his posturing that we see in Psalm 139, verse 23. He says to God, search me and know my heart. Try me, test me, sift me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous, grievous way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. Search me, test me, try me, sift me. Show me what doesn't belong and lead me to the place of where you are. That is the heart posture that we are called to have. That is what it means to presently, actively, habitually, continually flee. And so we see that putting to death the idols of our heart requires continuous action putting to death the idols of our heart requires continuous action paul takes it a step further in colossians 3 verse 5 again he says put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passions evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry put to put to death once again in the greek for you greek geeks out there i know you're here this again denotes that continuous habitual action this is not something that we put to death the moment that we come to faith in christ and then put it down every day thereon no we continuously put to death every time we find it we kill it that which doesn't belong. That continuous, habitual action. And if you don't believe me, go ahead and learn Greek and prove me wrong. But that's what it means, I promise. And so Paul draws his readers back to Israel. Because they're the perfect case study for the lures of idolatry. Right? How many of you have read your Old Testament? I mean, come on. How many times are we talking about idolatry? How many times are we rebuilding the elder, the altars and the ashram poles and the high places? Like, come on, Israel, right? They are the perfect case study. And honestly, you don't really even need to walk out of Exodus to see the writing on the wall. Right? We've seen the plagues. We've seen God come in power and deliver them from his mighty hand. And then what happens? The sea splits, dry ground. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We're ready to worship. Where's the water? Where's the bread? You, what? Like, we've 
been crying out for like 400 years and you just lead us out here to die? What, what is it, Moses? Was there no graves? I want to go back. At least they had some bread and stuff that they gave us. They gave us meat. We had all that we needed. Sure, they whipped our backs on repeat, but at least I could have a cold drink afterwards. What are we doing here? We see a people who worship their bellies. And the moment that they get a chance, their eyes go off of their amazing God and on their stomachs. So, Moses, through God's power, provides for the people. And then what do we see? In Exodus 19 and 20, God says, okay, we'll bury the hatchet. I got a plan, I got a purpose, but here's the thing. I'm going to come down. I'm going to land on this mountain. You don't want to touch it for a little while. You probably want to go make yourself pure and consecrate yourselves because a holy God is coming to this place. And I want to meet with you. I want to commune with you. I want to start a covenant relationship with you. And so he gives instructions to Moses to give to the people to say, go and make yourself ready for the coming of your Lord. And what do the people do? Instead of running to God, they run away from him. And they run up to Moses and they say, hey, you're really important. Why don't you be our representative? Why don't you go on that mountain? Why don't you go up and talk to God? Why don't you go talk to him about this whole covenant relationship thing? And you can come back and tell us what he says and we'll do it. We promise. Just don't make us go there. And Moses is like, no, guys, God is coming. Let's go. And then, uh, it's okay. You go. You go. Because their God is their self-preservation. And because they fear a holy God. And so instead of drawing near to him, they slink back from him and take an easy way out. Away with no risk. So then you go on a little further still in Exodus and Moses goes up to the mountain, right? Their great representative says, fine, God's cool with it. I'll go forward. I'll get the laws. I'll come back and I will tell you what it means to enter into covenant relationship with the Holy God. I'm coming back. He goes up. Boy, Moses has been gone for a while, huh? What do we do? I have an idea. Give me your earrings. What? Give me your earrings. Why? You, bracelet, now. Hey, you, chain. Yeah, let's go. You don't need a chain around your neck. What are you? Uh, And so all of a sudden they start taking all of this gold and melting it down and forming it into a golden calf because this calf, apparently, their gold, apparently, that God allowed them to plunder and take out of Egypt as slaves, apparently this gold, when formed into a golden calf, was actually the one who delivered them. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? He's been there the whole time. What? A little bit of silence? A little bit of distance? A little bit of quiet? A little bit of not speaking when they want him to speak? A little bit of not moving when they want him to move? A little bit of not being what they want him to be? And we will strip down our gold and fashion for ourselves an idol and attribute to him the works of your hand. Wow. Wow. And I know it would be tempting to take a step back and say, really, Israel? But guys, Israel is not the exception. Israel is the mirror. Israel is the mirror that God gave us to look into and to see our hearts. To see our hearts. To see the things that we are prone to do. We look at them and say, wow, look at how they are prone to wander. Lord, I read it. Prone to leave the God they said that they loved. 
Guys, that's us. That's our song. That's our story, right? And this is a warning that God gives us, and we're not even out of Exodus yet, to say, take heed. Right? Remember, do you remember that from Pastor Chris's verses a couple, couple weeks ago? We get that awesome, that awesome thing about how God allows us to stand up in the face of temptation, and yet what comes right before that, after all this stuff about Israel, his warning is, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Look at Israel. Look at their history. Look at their story. And in them you will see a mirror into your own heart, your own tendencies, the things that we are all tempted to do. And it doesn't take long to get there. And so, in light of that, he says, therefore, flee. Yes, that was just the setup for our passage today. Not going anywhere for a while? Grab a Snickers. So Paul draws our eyes back to Israel. Because he wants us to see that we don't always respond to the idols of our hearts in the way that we should. Because sometimes we become friends with that which we are called to fight. Because sometimes we welcome into our lives that which we are called to kill. That which we are called to run from. And we call something good for us which is actually there to destroy us. Which is actually there to deceive us. Which is actually there to rob God of His worship. To rob Him of His glory. To rob us of relationship and right standing with Him. But we're too busy excusing it and making room for it and calling the idols of our hearts, the things that sit on God's rightful place and on the throne of our hearts, good what is actually evil. And that is the point of our passage today. Verse 16 through 20 reads, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we would take, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So here Paul warns us, idols play in the gray, and they lure us away from where God is and wants us to be. Idols play in the gray and lure us away from where God is and wants us to be. Since chapter 8, Paul has dovetailed in and out of this discussion on eating meat offered to idols. And apparently, somewhere along the way, uh, in the letter that Paul was responding to, it came to light that there are some practices of the people of Corinth that are not gray. That we're, we're no longer talking about gray anymore, but we're actually talking about black and white, get out, run, kill, flee type stuff. that they were still calling gray. That they were still under the impression was 
okay. And so Paul is now addressing that in this point in the letter and saying, guys, we got to talk. Because it's one thing to talk about meat being offered to idols. It's one thing to go into the marketplace and find some meat and find out, oh, that was offered to, to uh, Artemis. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, I'll take a pound of that. No big deal. And it's another thing to have a free Friday night and think, hey, they just threw some meat on in the temple. And... Uh, I'm up for a free meal. Yeah, I think, I'll, I think I'll go to the temple and I'll sit down at the table and I will sit and dine with worshipers of these idols and I'll get a free meal out of it because it's just meat, right? It's just rock. It's just stone. It's just what is an idol? What is meat? Paul says, guys, this isn't the difference between getting your food from McDonald's drive through or dine-in. I know that they both say, have a, have a nice day after they hand you your tray or your bag, but we're not talking about the same thing. We're not talking about the same experience. This is not just, well, one way to get your meat is as good as another. N- no, you don't understand. There is something about the ceremony. There's something about the practice. There's something about the purpose that matters, and I need to draw your eyes to it. Because we're no longer talking about, should I buy this meat from a local vendor? We're talking about you standing in a place that no child of God, that no follower of Him was ever meant to be. And then he draws our eyes to two analogies, right? Two analogies to kind of make this point before we start talking about all this cup of demons and all that stuff. He draws our eyes back to the Lord's Supper. And this is something that we understand, right? As as now followers of Jesus, you know that I could go to Costco and I could buy a mat-sized bag of oyster crackers and I could go buy, I mean, just a gallon of grape, I mean, like, like a rain barrel full of grape juice. And I could come and I could sit and I could just eat handfuls of, of the body and drink cupfuls of the blood until I am just full to the gills of the elements. But that's different than when we come and when we gathered and the table is set. And we take the bread and we speak of what it represents. And we take the, 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 the juice or the wine and we speak of what it represents. At that point, there is significance in the symbol. There is significance in the table. No, I'm not talking that we eat it and it becomes literal body or we drink it and it becomes literal blood. But the symbolism matters. And we're not just talking about bread and juice at that point. We are talking about the body and the blood and what it represents. And so there's a big difference between me going out and get a gallon of Welch's and some oyster crackers than me coming in here and saying, oh, thank you, Rob, for serving the table today. I'll just, mm, there we go. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to take a couple of these. I'm actually pretty thirsty today. Thanks. Yeah, good to see you. Different. So there's a very big difference because what that represents in that moment matters. Amen. And you think you're getting a free meal. But I tell you, you are sharing a table with demons. And you are on unholy ground that no child of God should participate in. And yet, somehow, 
Oh yeah, I can go into the I can go into the marketplace and I can buy meat off of idols. What's the big deal? What's an idol? What's meat? Oh, I can walk past the temple. It's not like if I walk past the temple, there's anything wrong with that. It's what? It's a bunch of stones and there's a fake god in there. Who cares? Oh look. Bart and Sue's are in there right now. They're eating there tonight. Well, I mean, it's just meat, right? I was going to go buy it in the temple, but they already got it cooking over there. You know what? I'm going to redeem the time because God says, make the best use of your time. So for me to go home and boil this meat in a pot, let's see, that'll be an hour, two hours, and then, you know, got to set the table. If I just go in there now, I've redeemed the time. It's great. It's just meat. It's just an aisle. So I'm going to climb these steps. And I'm like, hey, Bart, hey, Sue's, when's dinner? Great. I'm going to sit down at this table that is made as an act of worship, as an act of feasting to a fake God, and I'm going to consume all the goods because it's just me. It's just stone. No, it's not. It says, look back to the Old Testament sacrifice. Go in your Bibles. Look at Leviticus 7. Look at, I've been reading through the Bible in a year again, and as I'm going through Numbers, I'm going through Leviticus, I'm going through all this, I'm like, oh man, here we go. And yet when I came to this, it was just like, oh, Oh, that points to this. And that which I was reading or listening to that just kind of seemed like, oh, what does this even matter? No, it actually matters. Because in Old Testament sacrifices, what would happen in some of the sacrifices would be that somebody would come, they would bring their offering, it would get burnt up on the altar, and then what would happen? The priest would take a portion and consume it. And then turn to the person who brought the offering, and he would take a portion and consume it. And a portion would be burnt to the Lord. And what he says here, the, the participants in the cup, the participants in the body, the participants in, uh, in the Old Testament sacrifice, that's the word, koin, it, it's from the word koinonia. What does that mean? Koinonia. You people who have been around a church forever. Koinonia means fellowship. It means that it's more than just a, a Costco free sample at that point. But that we are, we are fellowshipping with, we are participating in the symbolism that there is more to this than just the simple act of eating or drinking or, or, or talking to people around a table. No. The symbolism matter. And it actually shows that you are participating in what is actually occurring. And that's a problem. And Paul wants to point that out. Because the actions that you took, the steps that you took, that you thought were just gray, actually landed you on unholy ground in a place that you were never intended to be. So watch your step. Take heed, lest you fall to the same fate as the ones who came before you. Look to Israel who thought it was okay to just leave a couple of idolatrous people in the nation that God told them to completely weed out. Who thought it was okay to just, oh, she's hot. I can marry her, right? I mean, it's just one girl. Oh, and she has a sister. Cool. I'll get my brother. Hey, the good-looking family, huh? Yeah, they worship pagan gods, but it's just one or two. Ten, twelve, fifty, a hundred. What? You want us to erect what? Sure, we can put that up. It's just a pole. You want us to do what in the high places? Sure. You want us to sacrifice our kids to Molech? Yeah. How do you get there? That's how. One step at a time. One step up the temple at a time. Right?
Do you know where I am? I love you, Mr. Silatonga. He's so good. He's so good. Uh, let's skip ahead to uh, the verse 19. You want to do that? I want to do that, so do it. Paul warns that uh, there's, there's deeper meaning. And we've talked about this a little bit, but we're going to talk about it again. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Wow. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul's point here is that if we embrace what God abhors, we stand to face the loving correction of a jealous God. If we embrace, as we, not not speaking to unbelievers here, right? We, as his people, as the ones who he called by name out of the darkness into his marvelous light that he elected before the foundations of the earth were in place, that we, his children, his people, the ones who are set apart and unique to reflect the light of who he is to a broken, fallen, dark, diseased by sin world, if we embrace what he abhors, we stand to face the loving correction of a jealous God. And why doesn't that scare us today? Why doesn't that reality scare us today? Why don't we care about... I mean, even now, your minds are doing theological loopholes of why that doesn't apply to you. Right now, you are sitting, some of you are sitting where you are saying, that kid reads the Old Testament too much. Don't you know New Covenant? Yeah, I know, Paul just talked about it. Paul just talked about it. And he's warning us that if we find ourselves in places willingly or unbeknownst to us, that we are not supposed to be as children of God, as his followers, as his ambassadors, the one who represent not what we want, but what he wants, the one who represents his ways, his desires, his kingdom, his economy. If we find ourselves in places that we are not made to represent, we stand in line to be reprimanded. Because that's what a loving father does. Amen? Ask Jack Henry. <laughs> that kid gets loving correction more than any child I've ever known. But you know what? Sticking a fork in an outlet, not for his own good. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's Tuesday. Easy. Running out into the street without looking both ways for the ninth time in a day is not for his own good. Why? Because sometimes there's a car, Jack, but you don't realize that. And it's a funny example, and yet, is that not what we do? Brothers and sisters in Christ, is this not what we do? We act as though, because of grace, we can run out into the road and just dance in the middle, dance in freedom in Christ. Christ took the oncoming traffic, so we don't have to worry. Really? I've never read that in my Bible before. Yeah, the eternal wrath of God? Absolutely. Yeah, the punishment for our unrighteousness eternally? Absolutely. And yet we are in a time of purification of the bride. We are in a time where we are called to be a people that is unique, that is distinct, not smelling of the filth of this world, but elevating the one who saved us from it. 
And if we think that we can play in the stink and be okay in the end, that's a problem because cars come when you least expect them. And so that's why a loving father disciplines his children. Hebrews 12. See the church in Laodicea. See, I mean, see the entire Old Testament. Why don't I get this? (laughs) I want to live this way. This section that we're dealing with here, um, Romans uh, 14 and uh, this since chapter 8, verse 1, this is all dealing with that whole issue of gray area. And I know, for my black and white homies here today, I know you think that the gray is like that big. I get it. Um, I, I really do. I, I understand that struggle where when you read Be Holy for I Am Holy or Have Nothing to Do With blank, I mean, the gray is this big in your mind. And then there are those of us here who are just like, Jesus died, grace, everything is gray, everything is cool when you've been redeemed. Uh, wish the kids were in here. They would be like, that's the Lego movie. He's the coolest. Can't wait to be in youth ministry. Um <laughs> But the fact is that there, there is great. There's, there's difference in opinion, right? How many of you are big Spurgeon fans? We've got like a bust of him in the hallway or something, right? Big Spurgeon fans? You guys want to go do your small group with, with Spurgeon? You want to go do uh, some sermon prep with Spurgeon? Hope you like stogies. I mean, I really hope that you can take the smell of pipe smoke and all kinds of tobacco because that man, if you came up to him and said, you know, your body's a temple... You know that? You know that it's a temple and you're smoking that? He would blow smoke rings in your face in Jesus' name. <laughs> Those of you who are friendly enough with me to come over by my house, you will find a, a wine rack situated on the wall and we will have ample discussion if you come in and say, you drink? That's the devil's liquid. It is. You work with children. You of all people shouldn't be drinking. I set the standard for you here. Now follow it. Cool, we'll Bible. That's fine. We'll have a difference in opinion. Those of you who are my California brethren and sistren, you might come and uh, know that uh, S.P. Schultz has a variety of firearms and he likes to shoot them at living things. And you'll be like, Peter! And you will freak out and say, how could you? I thought you were a man of God. And you'll spar in love. And those of you who know Chris Fritz, you know that the force is strong with him. And that he will watch the Star Wars movies until he is pale in the face, paler than he already is. And... And he will go online and he will purchase Lego sets that cost way too much money. But it's the Death Star. Um, And some of you will look at that and you will say, wait, do you not know about all of the the demonic influences in that movie? And that's a slippery slope. I mean, you start watching Star Wars and all of a sudden you're doing Wiccan practices and and, and, and you can't. You just can't go there. Fine. We can agree that there is some gray. But we also have to know that at some point, and this is Paul's admonition of the, not really the stronger brother, but the stupid brother. He's saying everything is not gray. And if you think that you can just gallivant through life and follow your own whims, your desires, your wants, your your longings of your heart, you are going to find yourself on unholy ground. You're going to find yourself doing things, saying things, embracing things, representing things that you are not called 
to in the least. And when you do, you fellowship with, you break bread with, you entertain, instead of entertaining angels like, like Hebrews 13 talks about, right? When we, when we invite people into our homes and we show love, you didn't even know you were entertaining angels. Instead, we do the opposite. We entertain demons. We look at the king of this world, the prince in the power of the air, the ruler, the one who is in charge of this present darkness, and we say, I like your ways. I like your economy. I like the things that you let me do. I like the things that you say I should be and the things that you say I should run after. You know what? Let's do dinner. You bring the meat. Sound like a plan? Paul says, we need to be on high alert. We need to be constantly aware of the fact that even though we have been redeemed, there is still a continuous habitual action of looking at the idols that we, that our hearts want to create and saying, no, I turn from that and I turn to you. So the question is always, where's the line? And the truth is that the line is hard to define because it is different to each of us based on our convictions, based on the way God created us. And that's not the point of this. We can talk about that until we're blue in the face. And I feel like when we do, we miss really the point of what Paul is trying to get at. We want to know where the line is. Whether you are let's play in the gray or everything is black and white, we all want to know where the line is so that we can be safe. And Paul says, you're asking the wrong question because it's not about us. It is not about us in the least. And if we think that we were made to find how much of this world we could hold on to while still bowing a knee to Jesus, then you don't know why these bend. You don't understand why these bend. We were called to constantly ask God to search us, to sift us, to know us, to point out the things that we cannot see in ourselves. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm deceived, I can't tell. Wow, I should have made that a point. When I'm deceived, I can't tell. When I'm being stupid, I need someone to say, you're stupid. Right? And so based on our history and our personal propensity towards idolatry, we can never assume its absence from our heart and life. We should never assume that just because we enjoy it or because it's culturally acceptable or because it seems like not that big of a deal in in relationship to other things or because we see other Christians doing it, wearing it, watching it, smoking it, drinking it, that, that it's okay. Instead, those are the areas we must continually ask God to search us, to sift us, to test us, to try us because that which we deem as harmless... Nothing more than stone or wood or a hunk of meat may actually be our willing engagement in the ways of the ruler of this world. And as a result, provoking the righteous jealousy of the God who we say that we serve. And that is not a place that we want to be. And I know at this point we say, Grace! What about grace? Because why would a gracious loving God discipline children? 
Why won't he just give us what we want? I mean, for making our career, our families, our education, our, our primary, or at least a, a really, really big part of who we are. Why, why for caring more about finding approval in the eyes of man than living a life that's approved to him? Or, or for temporarily, temporarily delighting in the pleasures of this world more than seeking to please him? Didn't Jesus do all that for us? Didn't Jesus come and live that life so that I can just do me? Didn't Jesus live a perfect life so that I don't have to worry about it and just live my best life? Didn't Jesus change God's Old Testament scary personality so that we don't have to worry about His jealousy and His discipline? And while those of us who are well-versed in Scripture can sense the sarcasm in my voice as I'm saying these things, I guarantee that functionally, we still a lot of times operate that way. Even if we know enough to know, well, no, Matt, of course not. We still give ourselves an excuse functionally and say, yeah, but there's grace. Yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I know it is to God, but it's not really to God, right? Read Romans 6, read Ephesians 5, read Colossians 3, read 1 John, all of it. Yes, there is grace, but not as a hall pass from excusing us to live the lives we have been called to live. God's grace through faith in Christ and His work on the cross is an invitation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when we do, He gives us the ability to will and to want the things that are of Him. Why? Because He's a good, loving Father. And He knows that the car that is headed right for us called sin isn't going to be good for us. What an amazing, gracious God who doesn't look at sin and say, yeah, that's enough of it. That's a good amount of sin. No, He sees it for what it is even when we can't and calls us out of it by His grace. He doesn't excuse us to run headlong into oncoming traffic. Praise God God indeed. And what happens when His jealousy is invoked? Read your Old Testament. Read your Old Testament. Or if you're not big on the OT, read up on uh, the Church of Laodicea. Or his warnings in Matthew 24 and 25 about a church that um, just thinks that life is all about pleasure. The church in the last days. God's grace may shield us from his eternal condemnation because of Jesus' perfection, but it is not a shield against loving correction. It doesn't God, it doesn't shield God from seeing us as those whom he loved and chose and called and says, yeah, but I don't care about your sin. It doesn't change God's holiness. It doesn't change his desire for that which is good for us. And so in light of His love, in light of His grace, in light of His mercy, in light of His goodness and forgiveness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in some of us, we continue to flee, to fight, to kill everything in us that reflects the King of this world. And we seek to pursue, to walk, to abide in, to hold fast to King Jesus and all that He has decreed. Because that's what He's called us to. But to do so involves continuous reflection. I'm going to call, um, I'm going to call the band up now. And, um, I don't know if this is your heart posture. Honestly, um, 
it isn't mine on a lot of weeks. A lot of weeks I walk around and I allow my heart to be the idol factory that it is and just produce little things or big things that, that bump God off the throne in a moment or for a day or for a week or for a season. And, and I allow those things to become primary and Him to become secondary when really what I should be doing is bowing my knees before Him and saying, God, search me. Test me, try me, show me, reveal to me where I am deceived. Reveal to me what I can't see on my own. Your grace has made the way for me to have this relationship with you. Now do in me what only you can do. Search me, know me, test me, and show me the way that leads to you. Guys, we are called to do this, not once, but continuously. And so if this is your regular posture, great, we're going to create some space for it. And you can do it here. I don't even have to wait till the car. And if it's not, if it's not your current posture, then this is a way to work in the habits that we are called to have to live the Christian life. This is your first day for the rest of your life to foster this mentality that we are called to have. To invite the work of God's Spirit within us to show us what only He can show us. So we're going to play some music and we're just going to create some space to pray. The altar is open and if you come to it, you are not the dirtiest of sinners. You will be joining me. I probably am the dirtiest of sinners. And I welcome your presence next to me. But you can do it right where you are or whatever. And in a while, the band's going to play a song that I believe reflects the heart that we are called to have. And then we'll close. So without further ado... Thank mm-hmm. you.